Tom Latcham here from Raw. How you doing? This is the second part of our exclusive interview with drum and bass and jungle innovator, pioneer, originator, Ray Dreadkeefe. How you doing, mate? Thank you very much. Uh, we haven't talked yet about too much about your production. We talked a little bit about it in episode one, but want to explore it a little bit more now. Um, what tune are you most proud of making? We all know the famous ones, but is there... What, what's, what's your one tune that you're like, that is the, my crowning glory? Not the obvious ones. It's it's the ones that, that didn't really get the limelight. I did some uh, jazz tune, and I can't remember what it's called. Basement Records put it out as well. Phil, bless him. And I did like... Because um, I'm, I'm a rare groove soul jazz man, so it's more of the musical stuff that I do that doesn't really get noticed. That's one of them. And then there was another tune I made, and... Um, I can't remember, but I just, to me, I thought it was one of my best tunes, but it, but it wasn't. Um, but it was something that I was, I think I'd, I'd got to a point where I was engineering and, I, and all the layers and everything, I put it together and I went, you know what, that's the nuts. Like, that I felt really happy that I couldn't do any more to that tune. Because most producers you speak to, old or new, they'll tell you, when they make that body of work, they, they could have always done something else to it, but they just let it go and then you move on to the next one. But, um, oh, yeah, it's like some, it was like a jazz thing and I just loved it. I, it was, it's still one of my favourite tunes now. When I listen to it, I go, wow, did I make that? Wow, nice. You know, like that's a nice feeling, you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, obviously, one of your most famous ones is Terrorist, and uh, Nevis T says, he's asked us, says, take, take us back to that very moment. You, you've had that, that track finished in the studio, you've never played it out. Did you suspect that you created one of the defining anthems of the 90s and of the jungle sound? I made that tune in four hours. I just wanted, to, I wanted a dub to play, and I wanted to go and see my girl afterwards, and I wanted to smoke some weed. That was it. Which is a, a, a fine list of things that you should do. So I, I went in there, I said, Gav, I've only got four hours. I rolled out this tune. I knew it was Christmas 93. When you say Gav, for anyone who doesn't know, it's Nookie. Nookie. Yeah. He was like, oh, you just in and out. I was like, in and out. Got the <laughs> tune. Played it out. That was a big weekend coming up. It was the orange weekend, bank holiday, Christmas. 93, New Year's Eve 93, I gave the plate to Frost, to Ryder, to Fabio, to Kenny, to Randall, me. I think someone else, I can't remember. And it was played about 10 times that We all played it the <laughs> yeah. weekend and everybody was like... So were you playing, at, you, weren't at all, you were at different events or were you at well, the same? Well, we would have all been some at the same events and then, and then they would have been playing at different events. But as I walked into Orange, that was Frost's last tune. Uh, and that was um, Chris Paul. As I was walking in, I was doing the last set and, and he played it as his last tune. And I thought, you know what, he's playing it, that's wicked. Um, and that weekend, it just went off. And then, obviously, it came out in 94, but that's what when I made it. So did, did they all give you feedback on it? And they were like, that no, tune, by the way, mate. No. Yeah, if I saw them at Music House, they'd go, they'd just look at me and go, boy, Ray, the tune's 
but like firing, you know. Um, but they were my people. I, that's who I'd give my plates to. I didn't give my music out to anybody else, and they would go out and they would hurt the dance with that, and then and then it would be a tsunami. Every man. What was the dance. reaction when you walked in and, and Frost played it as his last tune? The crowd, well, I didn't the see because because you could hear what was going on in the rave at the reception, right? And and I didn't see the reaction of the tune, but um, I, I knew that that it was going to be a big tune. I just Were knew. you surprised by that reaction, or did you? Did you? No, you, you just because I made dance music. I made music to, to 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 make people dance, and that's what it was about. And are you surprised by its longevity? No, not really. Um, I, I think I think you always want to make music that stands the test of time. You don't want to make throwaway music. What, what the hell's that about? Do you know what I mean? You want to make something to leave your mark in this world. And how do you feel when you hear it now? Do you ever get bored? You've heard it so many times. No, I mean it's <laughs> it, it, it was it was um, it it was an amazing time to be growing up. It was an amazing time to be free. It was an amazing time to be young and brown, or young and black, or young. And and uh, 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 and a lighter shade of white. It, there was no colour then. It was just everyone was integrated. I'd be rolling with my white friends, my brown friends, my black friends. We would all be one. We'd be sharing splits. We'd be laughing. We'd be joking. We'd be taking the tune. We didn't see colour, and we didn't care. Give a shit who made the tune. It was that's a good tune. That's not a black geezer that made it, a white geezer that made it, a brown geezer that made it. It's like that was just a good. Tune. We didn't see colour. We were, you know, we were thinking out of the box because we know we're all different. But that's what makes it great. You know what I mean? Like when Mickey makes a tune, when Mickey made a tune back in the day, it was like fire. It was like, you know, Ronnie Sion made a tune and I'm trying to make a better tune than Ronnie. And there was there a real competition to oh, just out, was. outdo each other week yeah, by week? Yeah, Brian was, was, yeah, boy, Ray made a bad <laughs> tune, you know? And then they'd be like, what? That's very good. That's a very good in, uh, <laughs> impression. <laughs> but I've known B all my life, you know, like he, we were, he was working it out of rhythm and then that's how he would do it. And then, and then suddenly Ronnie'd bust a tune and then I'd be like, nah, and then, and then, and then, SS done something and sampled my tune. I went, yeah? Oh, this one. Uh, when I did um, Chopper, because that had later, later at the beginning. So we'd all take little bits out of each other and go, yeah? Oh, yeah, that old chestnut. But it was friendly competition. Did any of you ever charge, or were you just fine with each other just taking bits? No, from... because at the end of the day, that's what it was. What's yours is mine. And yeah, no one really got too annoyed about it. It was just like, you cheeky fucker. <laughs> um, and then you'd just go in and bat up the man in the net. And, so I know I'd see him on the road somewhere, and I know I'd be drawing that tune on him just as he's going. And I still do it now, and DJs go, oi, you got that yet? And I'm like, yeah, give me a call, you know, and then I'd sort him out. But that's what DJs do, don't we? We... we, we we hurt each other, but in a nice way because it's. But it's like, respectful, isn't it? Because you're taking. Yeah, because something I that love you. Of, you know what I mean. You yeah. can have what I've got. I don't like. That's it. You know, I'm humble enough to go, and I'm not. It's not even about being humble. We're decent people. But also, if someone's using a bit from your tune, you know that it's a good bit. Huh? Otherwise, they wouldn't be sampling it. Yeah, but I mean, there's. There, there's these fools that think they can do remixes and then put them out for free. That's not happening. And if you do, if you steal someone's tune and you remix it, you should be asking permission. 
not be passing it around to 20 men and then man's got to hear it on the dock. But that's a little bit different to a sample, isn't it? Yeah, right? that's, that's what I'm saying. There's rules and regulations. You don't take them Are out. they unwritten? <laughs> They're not written down anywhere. It's just a code of conduct. A code of conduct. And, it's, and, and, and you should have respect. And you should always respect your elders. And don't think your first mistake is thinking that I'm an old geezer. Don't ever underestimate that. Because there's wiseness, there's experience. And I will always want to learn from people. And I have the utmost respect for all the DJs and MCs and promoters that are here today that have lasted this long. And yeah, there's sometimes a man needs correction. You know what I mean? But... That's his, his own ignorance and that's his own wonky vibration. You need to get, in, get into the right vibration and be respectful. You know, I'm respectful. I'm going to treat you how I want to be treated. So one of your, the, the samples that you used to greatest effect was the aim and break. You've become known for that. How did you first come to see that you could use this to such great effect? Well, Mantronics had used it before me. Um, so there's no question in answering because I took it from them. I didn't take it from the Amon Brothers, I took it clean from them. And then I reworked the break to how it sounds now. So it was a new loop. Um, so yeah, I mean, listen, those artists should have got paid from day one. Like, but life's not fair. You know, people have sampled me. Life's not fair. You know, um, people clone you and then they make money out of it. Um, but, you know, you, you, you know that you've done that tune, you know, like, listen, the music business is a bitch. There's high, very great highs and very great lows. And you don't always get the juice that you, you deserve. You don't always get the money that you deserve because somebody else comes in and clones your shit, takes it and then makes it sellable and then, and then goes out there. Good luck to them. But they haven't got the integrity. And I think at the end of the day, if you love what you do, um, it's going to come full circle for you. Um, and what about the re-space? Mad Marshall asks, how did you and Nuki get the idea to use the re-space? And then did you realise that you'd created such a, a super combo with that and the Amon? Well, I no, mean, tell us a bit about the re-space. Yeah, well, the don't re-space know. originates from a keyboard. Um, one of the first DJs to ever use that producer was um, Kevin Saunderson. Uh, we sampled that bass and then we played the bass how we wanted to play the bass. So a lot of the times... To be original, you'd sample the sound or sample the bass, and then you'd play your own riff to do whatever you needed to do. Um, that piano was taken and replayed like inspired by Japan. He, that tune that he, that he had originally made was inspired by his tune. Um, but you made it your own because you knew you were going to get fucked if you just sampled a man out and outright. So that's how you push the boundaries. And where do you draw your inspiration from in sampling? And you mentioned that you would take a spit from, a, from another jungle tune or whatever, but because you're such into lots of different music, would you look at, would you always look outside as well? If you listen to Star Trek and you listen to Scotty, you know that shh, when the doors close, yeah, that's in there. So. Do you remember when you just said to me, I want to hear what that sounds like stroking my beard? Any... So it was just, just FYI, off camera, is our Sam is our, is our tech op, and he, uh, he said, by the way, Stop I can hear, that, I can hear you scraping your beard, but he wants it sampled for a change. Yeah, gym, but so. I, I would sample anything, because it's a sound. So when you're doing soundscapes and what inspires you, I might be watching a film going, wow, 
that sound sounds banging. And that's how it became popular because when you hear it, subconsciously, you, you listen to it, you go, I know that sound, but why is that sound? So you still do that now? Yeah. As if, you know, for instance, well, that sound, so for instance, that sound on, 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 you know, on, on with the door, they, they won't suit, they wouldn't ever go, that's our door. I'm gonna, I want some royalties for that door noise. You I mean, don't get any bother in that way? No comment. Okay. <laughs> That sounds like a man. The sound of the in action. Giving you motivation. And as mentioned before, of course, you, you famously worked with Nookie. Um, what was it like working with him in the studio? Is he a genius? He, he, he's an engineer. Um, yeah, he's a genius. Uh, he would always push me very hard, wouldn't help me. You play the bass line, you do this. You do that. I mean, he was a bitch in the studio. Like he was just pushed me so hard. But that's what made me so creative. And he was a great teacher. Where did he live? Because you used to go to his studio, didn't you? It was in his mum and dad's pantry. They had a pantry. They're fancy. No, like an old school pantry where like like it's cold and all the jars are in there and it was just horrible. Um, I can't imagine the acoustics were. That yeah, the, fun, the acoustics were amazing because it was like it 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 was like a corridor. So it was, you, you could just, and he, we used to mix the stuff down on his dad's Sony speakers that he reckons I blew up, but I don't think I did. Um, and he was one of the first engineers that was using an S950. I learned so much from him. I mean, I'm engineering now. I phoned him up last night and I was asking him uh, some stuff about Cubase and he was telling me. And I, you know, I've learned, I've learned so much from, but he was the rough and I was the smooth. Like when we'd done, I think we only done a few remixes together. You got me burning up. That was a classic. And that you could tell the rough and the smooth, you know, the light and the dark. So that was, that was a, I mean, I worked with him for like 15 years or something. So there, was an amazing a, so there was a very even partnership of, of you know, you, the, there wasn't one-sided. No, and he would always know. You know, I mean, he spent a long time engineering for me. Uh, when I had my studio up at Brick Lane, he would come up. I mean, I paid him, you know what I mean? Like any engineer, he got paid. He'd take his money, come in for three or four hours, and then he'd go about his business. He's making some amazing music again. And how did you meet in the first place? I was introduced to him by my friend, my good friend Pedro. They were part of, uh, he, they were working at Red Records. I was working at Black Market. Um, and my friend Pedro was working at Red in Brixton, I think. And he basically knew, he introduced me to him. There was another guy called Dr. S. Gachet who was doing some stuff with, with Nookie. And then I said, I need to get in the studio, Peds. And he went, yeah, 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 I linked my man, I linked my man. Then obviously Nookie was already signed to Moving Shadow. And that was the link that that tune got on their label. Sliding, sliding doors moments. Because if you'd have never met Nookie, if you're, you know, if you're, if Pedro had never yeah, but suggested that, it, him, what would, your, what would your career have looked? What do you mean it was inevitable? It isn't inevitable, is it? No, nothing is inevitable. Well, uh, if you'd never have met Nookie, how would that your I was career? Working in London and doors would open. That was always going to be. But how would your career have looked if you'd never worked with Nookie? Well, like I said, I wouldn't change anything for the world. I know, but if you'd never done it, how do you think you might look now? You know, would you have been as successful? Well, that's because not really bought... a question that you can say, well, you know, I could have walked into this door or that door mm. or that door, this door. Now you're going into some fantasy thing. 
it is what it is. You know, you're... Oh, come on, play with us, Keith. <laughs> yeah. You can see I've had these journalists before. Uh, uh, no, what, all I'm saying to you is, right, it was always inevitable. My dream was to go to London. My dream was to make music. I willed myself, all my power, all my energy, and the universe opened up for me. And I met great people. These, I'm still friends with these people 30 years down the line. It's inevitable. Do you see what I'm saying, Tom? There's no ifs or buts or whatever. That was my energy. That was my direction. They knew there was something about me as much as I knew there was something about them. And we watched each other's backs and we still got each other's backs today. And that's the beauty of, 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 of family. They're not, it's not even a friendship. They're, they're family to me. And we're in your studio uh, in your house now, and you've got, uh, if you're watching on video, you can see this mixing desk behind. You've got your Akai sample over there. There's some keyboards you can't see there, and you've got your decks here. How different is this now to historically when you were working in the 90s? This is the same studio that I set up at Brick Lane in exactly the same shape. So when 2008 came, five, six, seven, eight, we went into a recession. Um, Unfortunately, uh, we had to wrap things up because we lost a lot of money. Um, I was going through some bereavement um, and it was just a horrible time. You know, the industry was fucked. There was no money. And, um, and then basically we said, right, this, you know, luckily the owners at, at um, Offer, one of my good friends who used to run the whole of Brick Lane, the Trimming Brewery, he said, look, you owe this much, Ray. Don't worry about it, just go home. I was like, wow, what a beautiful thing for someone to even do. But they're just good people, and that's what I'm saying to you. You know, I came home, I reset up my studio, and then 2012, I started to learn how to, de uh, to engineer. Because I just thought, I can't wait for people to come to my house anymore. Mm. I just need to sit in front of the computer and do this. And it was the best thing I ever did. How hard was it? Listen... Nothing's hard if you love what you do. It's, it's just, it unfolds and you're learning. You know, you learn from your mistakes. It's like boxing. If you love, no one likes to get punched in the face. <laughs> you know, that's one of the most awfulest things that can happen to you. You know, and I've had blood coming out of my nose and my mouth and I've had a good tear up with, and a good spa, but I've learned from that and I'm not making that same mistake again. You know, like I'm watching and I'm, you know, it's like anything. If you love what you do, it, you're, you're just going to keep going at it. I love it. I come up here the other day, and how I make music, I might work on two or three tunes at a time. I'm cooking dinner. I come up here. I'm doing the bass. I go back downstairs. I check the potatoes. I come back upstairs. I know I've got 10 minutes, and it's pushing me to, to a time frame where i just got to keep going, and, 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 and I'm loving it. Do you know Most what importantly, what's your signature dish? I've got a few. I've just do some... Mad crazy stuff. I just, I just love cooking. I like doing the Sunday. I think we found a format here. Cooking with Ray Keith. <laughs> that could be something. <laughs> I'd like to go on to MasterChef at some point and see how much I could test myself and go in the zone. Well, I know the booker of MasterChef. Do you so really? I will email her on your behalf. Listen, talk to her, man. <laughs> um, I mean, if we can make that happen, that yeah, would be amazing. Oh, mate, that would be that. Make my no. I really love cooking, and I think it's something that I think I can learn so much about if you're in that environment. It's like boxing, you know, like, like I love speed. I'm a qualified um, jet ski instructor now. Yeah. So, yeah, that 
if I go into... There's another format, jet skiing with Ray Keefe. Well, I'm going to do some... some Because um, uh, I went on... You can buy speakers and all that now. And it was really nuts when I was training with all these guys. And, and the instructor, we're out at sea on this rib, right? And we're in the middle of the sea and he was like, Ray, is this one of yours? And I didn't have my camera. We're all on jet skis and he's playing chopper. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was like, yeah. So it was, it was crazy, you know. But that was just one of those moments that all of us guys will always share. But it, uh, no one had their phone with them or the batteries were dead. But yeah, I, I, I think if you apply yourself and you love doing something, you, you're going you're gonna to become great at it. it just to, not to linger on it too long, but when that period happened, when you had to move studio and you were struggling for money and you had some bereavement, was there a, was there a point, maybe then or at any other time, when you thought about, I, I might have to walk away from music, I might have to do something else? No, I just did something else. I started cleaning windows right. and learned how to become a window cleaner. Oh, really? And, and I grafted that way. Yeah, because integrity is everything. And I've subsidised my love and this love affair for music for the whole of my life. So I've done it before, you know, I've done it at City Sounds. I've worked in clothes shops. I've worked in factories. I would work during the day to fund what I loved. And in the end, what I, the love affair that I had with music, she started to repay me in ways that I thought hard work prevails you know and that's what it's about if you if if you work hard good things will happen and you mentioned earlier um that uh, you know talked about remixes you are or certainly during the 90s you were you were the man to go to for a remix thank you very much um, why was that the case and what made you so talented at them that everyone wanted you to remix their tune i call them the golden years i mean i, I just I just became the remixer and I think it was looking at all my predecessors like Dancing Danny C and uh, Dave Durrell, Dave Morales. Um, these guys were doing huge remixes. Uh, CJ McIntosh, you know, all these guys were, were, were huge remixes. And then I, I suddenly started to mess about with other people's music. <laughs> I keep banging. Um, and then suddenly it was just an influx, you know, like I was walking in the West End one day and Someone phoned me up and went, oh, uh, hello there. And I said, hi. And they went, we're from Mute, Rhythm King. We want you to remix Moby. And I was like, the, uh, first of all, I was thinking, how the fuck did they get my number? Because that was what you would be thinking. Where did you get my number from? And, um, and then I was just like, oh, okay, cool. Oh, we'll, send, we'll bike the bits over to you on that and you can sign for them. Because that's what we used to do. We used to send bikes in the old days bites to cut a plate I was uh, my first remix and I've got a big up Pete Tong you know because um, he signed a bootleg mix that I did of uh, I'm just trying to think of the tune now my memory's gone I've done it. Orbital Chimes and I did a bootleg mix of that Groove Rider was the first person Great tune. ever played Great that tune. tune then they signed it to London and Pete Tong rang me up and went Hi, you, Bonehead. Um, they used to call me Ray Bonehead because they thought that music was... Because I had bald head, they thought it was like... I don't know what they fucking thought, but they used to just call it, oh, that's that Bonehead music, innit? And, I, and he went, oh, Ray, he said, uh, see that remix, see that mix you've done? We're going to sign it. And I was like, I was like, what? And he's like, we're going to pay you for it. And I was like, really? And it was a lot of money back in those days. 
And I thought, fucking hell. And I ch- it's funny because I was talking to my friend Floyd Dice the other day and I went, I like, because you forget, because I'm writing my book at the moment. We talked about that. That's actually, I've been writing that for about 10 years. But it's only now that I, we've got time in lockdown. I thought, you know what? I want to I wanna do something because I've had an amazing career and I've met some amazing people and there's a lot of people I want to thank. There's some testimonials that I want to do. And I was talking to Floyd and I was thinking, all these remixes just came at once. There was Baby D, there was Scotty, there was... I just became the king of remixes in a short period of time, but I, I was just loved it. It was just great. How do you approach a remix? What's and what, what's the key to a to a great remix? I just I, I just think make it your own. You know, like put. But your, it's got to be the set. It's got to retain. Well, the no, because of you're going to take the bits that you like out of it. I mean, they sent me the Moby remix, and the only thing I took out of that was yes, yes, because the yes, rest yes. of it I was like, I can't use any of this. It was just and those vocals. Did they like yeah. it when it went back? Well, of course they did. They, it became a huge, massive hit for them on the underground because they they needed to have that underground sound and to represent what's going on, just like now with the trap or the grime or whatever. But, yeah, they loved it. And have you ever turned down a remix? And if so, why? No, I don't think I have. I think everything that came my way through the universe I was blessed with and, and we managed to touch and turn into gold because that's, that was the vibration, you know, we, we were, and I was on point, you know, I lived it, I breathed it, I ate it, I sold it, I played it, 24-7, me and Nikki in the shop, it was an amazing time. And uh, you, I'd like to talk to you about your label, Dread Recordings, at its first release in 1995. Why did you decide that you wanted to start a label? Because I was doing so many fucking remixes <laughs> and everyone was getting paid and I was like, hang on a minute. I said, I rang, I rang up Phil from Basement. I was like, mate, we need to get a label together. He goes, well, yeah, of course, come over any time. We set it up with Damon and, and, um, and Pez. Pez done the original artwork. Um, that was all through uh, World Dance as well, Jay, we were all connected and, um, and we never looked back. So I thank Phil uh, from Basement for helping me put the label together, who curated and narrated the first three or four uh, releases that we had and, and we never looked back. Why did you call it Dread? Um, I saw Judge Dread and I used to like um, Stallone and I thought, you know what, I need a, I need a name that's going to stand the test of time. And that's me. I'm bald-headed. I used to have dreads when I was a kid, um, when I was younger in my teens, and I just thought it was such a... Uh, it represented kind of all aspects of kind of reggae and dancehall and my love of black music and my influences from soul, rare groove, jazz, house. And that, that, that's what attracted me to it. And I thought, you know what, that's a really good name, Dread, you know, mm. and it's become a household name. So it is a great name. Thank you. And uh, can you sum up the Dread sound in a sentence? I think it's just raw love and energy. It's just, it's just to the point. You just know when you hear that beeline or you hear that break, you just go, that's dread. And there's a lot of people that make that now, which is great because it's, it's left uh, an imprint and a blueprint for when I'm long gone 
there'll be other dread fans and 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 people that have been that that actually touched their lives. And which tune on Dread that you didn't make are you most proud of? Um, there's a few, but there's a young kid called L, and he's done this tune called What. I mean, everything we put out, uh, we love. Um, but it's just something about it that it's just, that's a Dread tune. It's just got that sub bass and that jungle vibe. But even though it's like a little D&B roller, it, 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 just, it just hits me there. There's been a few tunes, you know, um, Dillinger had, had, uh, um, had some tunes on our label, Lemon D had some tunes on our label. I've had amazing remixes done on our label, but there's just a, I don't know if that's standing out for me now. I'd have to listen to some of the back catalogue and go, oh yeah, that was... How many movie. tunes have you put out? Oh, I looked at my Discogs a little while ago and I was like, <laughs> fucking hell, you made some change, you know? And I was like, <laughs> it goes on for pages. But you never realise how much you've done of your work rate. You just make tunes. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm, a, I'm an artist. I just, I want to make music. So you don't think... And you've got to make a lot of quantity of music because the, then, then it, you hit uh, a moment of beautifulness where you go, it's not now about quantity it's about quality but you've got to experiment you've got to be in there all the time pushing the buttons listening to the sounds pushing your what what what's coming out of you absolutely fucking hijack them two there the sound of ray keith touching down you're listening to the raw the 90s ray podcast with me tom latcham in the place with ray keith the jungle and drum and bass pioneer uh, if you want to uh, get in touch with us, please do on email, hello at the 90s podcast.co.uk or on social media. You just have to search on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter for Raw the 90s Rave Podcast. But do go and check us out. Say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Any questions or suggestions for guests you've got in the future, uh, we are certainly all ears. Uh, also, as well, if you can spare a few pennies, however big or however small, any donation gratefully received to keep this project going, to keep more 90s Rave content coming your way. If you want to do that just go to gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast that address again gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast it's you guys that are going to keep this going i did a a, a, a chat the other day with paul o who is a, a, a promoter of uprising so it's, it's a hardcore um event up in sheffield and they're much more the further north you go it, the harder they go and and i'm interested to know in sort of you know jungle were there a clear? I mean, obviously, there's a clear difference between Bristol, for instance, and elsewhere. But were, was it? Dif- what was the difference up north with the music and the type of music that was being made? I think everyone's got a different melting pot and everyone's got a different interpretation. But you've got to remember that that sound was coming out of London, so it was everyone was trying to emulate that London sound, and that's where it went global. Um, and there's no doubt about that. So that was where it was invented. That was where it was. That was where the first clubs where people were raving they heard that sound and they were touched by that sound and then that started to filter out on tape packs then that started to filter out on going out to raves and you know like those the djs that were huge at the time up north top buzz seduction fantasy um uh, fabio groove rider mickey finn Oh my days, he was like God up there. Do you know what I mean? I played at a couple of parties. I always remind him that like when I came off, I had a, an amazing shout. When he came off, it was like 
Barcelona just scored a goal or something and I just kind of went, really? <laughs> you know, it was like that. It was just such a big, I mean, it was a huge gap. Like Mickey was like God. Do you know what I mean? He was the prodigal son up north. Why? He was the Why? king of the north. Why? Because he was made just him that? he was just like you couldn't test Mickey for a dub plate because he knew all the reggae artists and he would just smash it. And that was just what Mickey was about, you know, his love of black music, his love of black culture. But again, we didn't see colour. We were just like, oh, Ray, have you got this tune? Oh, Ray, have you got that tune? Oh, Darren, have you got this tune? I draw this tune on you. Ryder's got that tune, you know, it's a bad tune, you know. So we always all <laughs> made, you know, Brian's got some tunes, you know. And, and when Brian gave me the dat to take home, I, I was a uh, telepathy and he gave me a dat and he went, Ray, check this, this, these boys from Bristol, you know. When I went home and I listened to it and I said, fuck it now. The way these boys have cut up the brakes was like on a different level, but you knew something different was coming along, you know. And, my, and some of my music, you know, like, uh, you know, like Bookham, I don't think Bookham actually knows this, but I sampled Bookham enough, like his breaks, and then I just made them prominent and mine, fat, out loud, in the front, where they'd use it in the background as a little shimmy or something. And, and I, I sampled enough of their breaks um, and How made it my own. How interesting. Yeah. And I don't think he actually knows that. That's amazing. I think, I think maybe he does, maybe he does because the original of Chopper, that was, was from one of their tunes. And I love the break. But that's what I'm saying. You were inspired, I was inspired by his music. I mean, you know, Demon's theme. And when you just hear them bass lines, it was just like, wow. I love Danny. We're all still tight. We're, we're like family, you know, like that's never, that's never going to die. We're, we're always going to see each other. And when we see each other, we love each other because we've got so much memories, you know. We, we've been on road together. We've been in America together. We sat down in restaurants and had breakfast and dinner together. We smoked spliffs together. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a connection that you are never, ever going to be able to take away from Do you miss those days? Yeah, of course. Like, it's like sometimes I, I, I come up here and I play music and I get a bit emotional and I cry and I think, fucking hell, like... Astoria and where I've been and where I've played because don't forget, I feel it just like you feel it. But I'm just up there playing it, but I'm feeling it how you're feeling it. You know that that how you want to cry and how you're looking at your mate and how you're thinking, oh fucking hell, this tune, mate. It's emotional, and that and I and I get that. And sometimes that's why it's great. I've been able to go back on House FM and play all those tunes. I did a set the other day and I was just in it. I was like, wow, it takes me back. You know. Amazing. Uh, well, we're here with Ray Keefe. Uh, he's a <coughs> jungle drum and bass pioneer, legend, icon. Uh, we're going to wrap it up shortly here on Raw by asking him to look back uh, and reflect upon his time and as well as sort of looking forward uh, and, and talking about now and what the future holds for this scene of his. If you want to get in touch with us, hello at the 90s Raid podcast.co.uk on email. All your social medias, Twitter, Insta, Facebook, you name it. Just search for Raw, the 90s Raid podcast, and you can find us there. Inside the sounds of the original one of a kind, a Reiki original terrorist, touch it down. Tom Latcham here on Raw, the 90s Rave podcast. Uh, we've been, this is the second part of a uh, fascinating and really thoroughly enjoyable interview with uh, Jungle and Drummer Bass Pioneer Ray Keefe. I mean, it's been me. You don't, like, are you thanking me? Yeah. <laughs> um, but we're going to wrap this up now because we've been here for, we've taken up loads and loads of his time and thank you for, for doing some. Um, 
just want to sort of look back on the 90s rave scene a little bit and also come forward to now. You're a renowned DJ, label owner and a producer, but you do all sorts of other things as well. You've been training as an actor. Most people, you know, a lot of people won't know that. Um, tell us about that and, and hopes for the future. You want, you're going to be a Hollywood star? I think, I think if you're in any type of art form, whether it's music or whether it's uh, DJing, I think it's a natural progression because you want to then take it vocally. I mean, I'm um, bigging up Ash, Ashley Waters from Top Boy uh, uh, and John Ward. I went to their acting school for two years. So you've had a lot of interaction with Ashley, because, I mean, he is Yeah, I mean, but, right? you know, Ashley and Noel Clark, they paved the way for, for actors of colour in this country, mm. without a doubt, Idris Elba. Um, and it's important, you know, for us to um, carry on the dream. Do you know what I'm saying? So uh, I did some stage work. I, I've sung on stage, which was a bit nuts, because on my last album, I sung on a couple of tunes. And it's just, the more you make yourself- Are you yourself, a good singer? I, I sound, yeah, I suppose I sound, I don't know if I'm a good singer, you'd have to judge that, but I can sing. Um, but it's a husky voice. It's more kind of like Johnny Osborne, Dave Clark, you know, uh, 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 like, um, oh, his name, Johnny Clark, you know, the old school guys. And, um, but I love it. You know, it's again, it's another dynamic that you go into and you think, wow, I want to explore this. Um, I've worked with a lot of singers. I've worked with a lot of writers. I can write music, i.e. songs. So it's a natural progression. So, and the more you hang about with gifted people, uh, I've worked with Floyd Dice, um, he produced a couple of my tunes. I've worked with uh, Soundman, uh, Raga. You know, those are, those are our people. So I think it's a natural progression. But yeah, I love it. I love it. And it's not just I'm going to be bomber number six or robber number four. Uh, I want to I do some, some, some Denzel shit, you know, like get into character and you become that person. And also, we've met so many people along the way that it, you can be anybody who you want to be, you know what I mean? And I find it really, uh, you know, like Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, these guys, like the Joker film, it was just... Do you think you'll be able to uh, translate your acting training into actual acting work? Yeah, because I've done a, a, a few bits already. I think, I think I'm, I'm not, you know... I'm not desperate to make a career change and, you know, at the, at the moment they're not supporting the arts. So, you know, there'll be a time and a place for that to come into and it, and, and it will be at the right time. And, um, and I want to do some, some really good, good stuff. So, you know, like, like music, doors will open. You've just got to keep knocking on them and someone is going to go, hey, you know what, come with us. And you're a busy man, like you're using uh, this period of lockdown to work on your book. What will go into that book? What will, what will make it stand out from the others? Because there's, there's plenty of people who've written, uh, who, artists and DJs who've written books. Some of them are better than others. What would make yours I don't. Stand I don't out? think I'm trying to make mine better than anyone else because I believe everyone's got a story to tell and that's their story. And I just think that I have had... A crazy life, <laughs> and um, and I think the opening, which I don't want to give away too much, but I think the opening of the book, people are going to go, nah, never. It's going to be shocking. So I think everybody's got a different angle. 
And listen, my story is not any different from anybody else's story. There's heartache, there's pain, there's love, there's good times, there's bad times. I just think that if you can inspire someone to get off and do something with their lives, then, then, and the amount of people that we've touched through music, I think they want to know a little bit more about me. Yeah, they see me on social media, um, but I think this is a little bit more up close and personal. Like, uh, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely do an audio version mm. as well. So like I'm in the room with you, yeah, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Which I think a lot of people would, would, would like that. And, um, and everyone's got a story to tell. And I, and I just think all of us from the 90s um, and the 80s have got something to say because we contributed our lives to something. Well, I think that's what makes this podcast different because we are casting back to the 90s rave scene. And actually, a lot of interviews you will do, you'll be talking about now, but people won't necessarily ask you that much about the 90s. But it's interesting because it's 20 years on. Mm. So actually, that's what you're looking at it from a different view. So if you were asked about it in the 90s, you're living it, you're in the present. So you're going to get a very different view with you know, the power of hindsight. I, I look at it as a testimonial. I look at it as like I've, I've worked all of this through my life. This is the presentation of what we've done. This is my journey. And there's probably lots of shit that you didn't know about. Like, I don't like wet hair. Well, quite. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I'm just using that as an example, the do's and the don'ts, the likes and, and whatever. And, and it's a little bit more up close and personal. And, and I, the, the book is, is already 10 years in the making of writing because I started it and I stopped it. I've al already written 20,000 words, which for a book usually is about 120, 130, 140. Depends. Yeah. Depends how big your font is. But, but um, I, I just, yeah, I just felt that I I was compelled to do that. Before the trend was writing the books, I thought, you know what? Yeah. It's... And listener Russ Bester wants to know about your foray into boxing uh, a little while ago. Um, why did you do it? How did you, uh, how did you get on? And do you still keep it up? Well, I know you keep it up because when we arrived earlier, you arrived back from boxing training. Um, so tell us about, about that, about it's why you decided. It's changed my life, really. I've Has had, it? Yeah, I've had a couple of fights. Um, I had an episode uh, eight years ago, a big health scare, I needed to have a lifestyle change. And basically, it, I started going down to the gym. Well, I used to train around where I live. Um, and then one day, it was really raining, it was cold. And my ex-wife suggested I go down to this gym. I went down to this gym. I met, I, I just used to train on the bag myself. I'd done a little bit with my friend Pedro. I, when I was younger, I, I, I did karate when I was a kid. Mm. And um, they say you have muscle memory. And I was banging the bag, and Gavin from Madra Moore, one of one of the, the the instructors there, goes, "You boxed before, then?" And I went, "No." He went, "You know, you want to come in here with us?" And before you know it, six weeks later, I was having a fight. Um, I had my first white collar fight, and that was a draw. Um, but then I just got the bug for it, and then I had an IBA fight. Um, with a guy called Lee Cage, and that was that was amazing. I've watched it. Yeah, on YouTube. You, you big, won, yeah, and you won. Yeah, uh, unanimously. But but in that, my discipline was: I'm not taking a knee, I'm not getting knocked out, and I'm going to go the distance. <laughs> that was like it, I was half. That kind of like, key elements of boxing, really. Well, if you're yeah, going to win, but I was just like, I'm not going down. And he was a big lump. Yeah, yeah. And he was very strong. And 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 the first round, I was like, but again. 
It's about how you apply that time for the discipline of the training, of the fighting, the people that your lives that, you know, like John, the other trainer, he looked at me and went, look, if you're in trouble, I'll throw the towel in. Because you've got to have people that have got your back. It's no joke going in there. And it's a warrior mode moment. And like everybody else, you just... I stood in there and I went, what the fuck am I doing here? I want my mum. That's the exit door. I want to go home. I don't want to be here. Ding, ding. Oh, fuck. Let's go. And that was how it actually felt. But do you know what? It's the adrenaline. It was... It. I mean, I've sparred with so many people afterwards and I've trained with, like I said, those guys, uh, Duffy, imagine more John. Uh, there's another guy called Dan from Ultimate Gold Fitness. And these guys, and my mate, uh, I, I sparred with one of my mates, uh, Sean, and um, it's, I just have the best time. Do you know what I mean? Because it's controlled. It, it's not about, you know, bashing each other up. How good are you? Do you think that if you'd have started it earlier when you were... Oh, well, you have to do it early, really early if you want to be a pro, sort of usually in sort of mid-teens at the latest. Do you think if you'd have done that, you would have stood a chance of becoming a, a, a professional? Do you know what? It's funny because I, I, there's a guy called Liza as well um, and there's another guy as well um, who's doing some fights at the moment, uh, Daz, and I've sparred with them and, uh, and, Dan, um, and Duffy as well. And, they t and actually Liza turned around to me and went, Know what, Ray? Because you know we're and they are seasoned boxers. Like they know what to do. And they went, you keep up really well with us, and you, and actually, um, you're pretty good. And I and I and my, I only found this out a little while ago. But my dad actually used to be a boxer, right. and he used to do football. But I didn't really pay any attention until I got into it. And I think if I hadn't gone down the 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 um, the music route, I think I would have gone down the boxing route. Right. Who was the geezer before Amir Khan who used to work? Uh, Prince, Prince Nassim. Prince Nassim. So I'm about the same age, the same age as him. And I can bang. Like I, mm. I can take a punch, but I can bang. And I love the, I just love the dynamics of it. You know, I nearly went in the army when I was 16, but my dad wouldn't sign the, um, the papers. But I've got some great mates that I go shooting with when I go to Canada. We go and hit, um, um, targets up in the mountains. I love guns and I like, I like the art of martial arts. Um, I think it's, it, it's just, it's, a, it's an art form, whether it's music, you know, whether it's acting, whether it's singing, they're all art forms, you know. So I think we've all got your dad to thank for your music career by stopping you from going into the army. And you can probably think that actually, thank God he did that. No, because I was really up for it. You know, like I was growing up and it was tough growing up and I just wanted an out. You know, I came from a broken home. My mum and dad were divorced. It was an awful time to be growing up when you're young and you're losing that identity. The, mo the two most important people of your life that's supposed to guide you are no longer there, you know. So I think, again... When I did karate, that kind of gave me a family sense. I grew up with an Italian family, the Anzalonis. They gave me the sense of family that I was missing because it was a bit... And you found that as well in, in the 90s rave scene too? Yeah, without a doubt, because they suddenly became my family, you know, like, and I'm top, when I'm telling you we're tight, we would take a bullet for each other. We've been in situations where man's had to get paid and we have had to get paid. Um... But we have all looked after each other and there is a genuine 
if, if it, there's a genuine kind of sense of loss if no one's there anymore. You know, like Stevie, he was one of us. You know, he was an innovator. And um, we've lost a lot of people along the way. You know, um, Kemi was... Can I ask you about uh, Stevie Harvey? Because a lot of people have, have asked me to ask you this question. What, what was his legacy as an MC in the scene? And also, when he did pass away, how did, how did, you, how did you all, you personally, but also collectively as a group of... DJs and artists in yeah, that scene feel. That was a really sad time because I remember Nicky rang my home phone about four or five times and then I, I got him on the phone. Now I was one of the last people to see him because we were at Camden Palace and he was leaving. I was coming in to do the last set. He just got signed to a major, Fulton Broadway, and they were going to put his album out and he was holding his chest and, and he said to me, I said, you're right. He said, yeah, I've got, I've got like heartburn. He goes, I'm going to go home. He goes, but I'm going to chat to you in the week and let's get together and make, 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 make some tunes for the album. And then Nicky called me and then told me he'd, he'd passed away. And that sense of loss is just... You, you can't really... And, you know, like, Nicky's like our kid. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's like our little young brother that you'd protect. And to see him go through that, and he was young, he wasn't really equipped to go through that emotionally. We worked in the shop together and it was so heartbreaking. You know, like when you lose your mum or when you lose your dad and when you lose someone, you know, and, that, and that's something that, you know, as much as that is a sad moment, the moment that I can share with you is Nicky's a little fucker sometimes because uh, we, we were up in Manchester and he was with Stevie. Now, he knew that Stevie was like potting the, potting, potting the kingpin shot because if you've got him in your corner, he's going to tear up the dance. So, you know, they were on in Manchester, you know, and I saw Nicky uh, up there and I thought, and you know, he's like, yeah, he's sure of himself. It's like, yeah, you know, bust up the place in it. I'd smash this up. Me and Stevie, you know, Stevie, you know, they're killing it. And I went, oh yeah. So I come on with the remix of the Dirty Chopper. And I mixed it in. So the Reese bass line would just drop in and out. And when I'm telling you the place went mad, <laughs> right? I had to wheel up the tune three times. There you go. I think, well, I wasn't there, so I can't say. <laughs> so, and then Stevie went, you know what, I'm going to jump on with Ray, you know. <laughs> and as he jumped on, he went, mah, 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 mah. and the place, I'm telling you, that feeling. And I looked at Mick, Nicky, and Nicky was bending his ear like that as if to say, you fucker, I want that tune. <laughs> but that's how it was. You know, we was family. But he knew, and you know, like we go in there, and we are, we're not messing about. You know, like when we go and DJ, we're not, go in there to just fuck about. All the DJs right now in, in our calibre and in our, um, in our age group and all the pioneers, we don't mess about when it, it's serious. We take our stuff seriously. It's part of our lives, it's our legacy, do you know what I mean? And that moment now, that I'll always hold that moment, me and Nick will always hold that moment because we shared that moment together. You know, and there was times when um, 
uh, I listened to Stevie Hyper, uh, me on some tape pack, and I was like, fucking hell, it sounds like I'm there. It sounds like he's there. He's not gone, you know. And there's a legacy, isn't there? When I'm, when I'm long gone, people will play our music, that they'll love our music. I've been so blessed to be part of something that's been global and be part of and share it with people, you know, like that. What, what bigger gift could you have than that? So I wouldn't change anything for the world. But yeah, Stevie was just like, it was it was a it was a moment that that you that it was a moment that just everything stops and and then you just think how precious life is and that you've got to grasp that moment today rather than tomorrow. So moving forward to now, as we sort of wrap up this interview. Um, Obviously, no one's playing out. How much do you miss the playing in front of a crowd? Yeah, of course, like all of us. I've been lucky. I've done some social distancing events and the music's been amazing. Is it the same, though? It's not the same, yeah, is it? Of course, it's not the same. But at the end of the day, you're going to just test out tunes. I was with Randall the other day. We were in Bristol. I played at the last shutting down of Blue Mountain. Managed to shell some tunes and see what, it, see what the dynamics... Yeah, of course, it's not the same. We've just got to pray and hope and support each other until this, this, this is over. You know, this is real, real life. People are dying, you know? So there's, a, there's been a d discussion and debate among DJs, uh, and Doc Scott is an example of this, where he said, if the government's going to continue doing this, then I'm going to go back to where I started, which was illegal raves, and I'm going to play illegal raves. Would you ever play an illegal rave? No, because I just think that, um, for me personally, that's not the way I want to go down. I want... I don't want anyone to go down to somewhere that I could be responsible for the death of the member of their family. That's not me. Um, yeah. As Do you understand why people are? Yeah. I mean, you know, people don't want to be locked up, but we need to sit down and shut the fuck up and ride this out. Like, if you're going to go and infect more people, then it's going to just keep going. So what do we do? We need to adhere to what the guidelines are hope that there's a vaccine because real people are dying and I don't want to be that self-indulgent and go no you know what fuck it I'm going out if I go to a social distancing place and there's and there's the tables there I'll take that for now because I can't change the world I'm not in power but what I can do is help see it through keep entertaining people on the radio keep doing my weekly show um and, you know, I love Doc Scott, but he's got his opinion and I respect that. That if he feels that he needs to do that. I don't think he's talking about... Um, I think he's looking at the big picture, that this is our livelihoods. You should be supporting us. There's a, there's a little bit more to that, you know. The government should be supporting every single actor, DJ, artist, anyone that's in the arts, because we are viable, we are important. We make you smile, we make you love, we make you dance. So... Fucking sort it out. Do you know what I mean? Like that's that's the crux of it. Um, but no, I, I personally wouldn't. I'm going to wait until we've got the green light. And when we do have the green light, what do you see? Will will it be the same scene that it was? Of course, it's uh, or is there going to is there going to be any difference? You yeah, know? of course. The, the difference. And what will the difference be? The difference is I've been speaking to some promoters now. You'll walk through a pod. You'll get sprayed. 
you'll get tested for COVID, it'll come back negative or positive, you'll walk through another pod and then you'll be in the rave. But what I mean more is about the style of music and the styles of raves. Because what, so I talked to Force and Styles on previous uh, uh, episode and they said they think that probably you might see an increase in mixed genre stuff because that's what happens abroad. It's only in the UK we're so like, right, what is this music we need a genre? And they think there'll be more mixed genre. I don't know. About, uh, yeah, do you I think, think, that I think might there's, be the I case? think new things are going to happen. Listen, we were talking about the birth of 92, 93, 94, 88, 89. Now we come to 2020. Yeah. It seems that every hundred years there seems to be some type of cull or some type of world pandemic. I believe after the Second World War there was influenza that killed 55 million mm -hmm. people worldwide. Mm -hmm. um, and we're here we are again a hundred years later. You know, um, we need to look after our planet. We need to be more clean. We need to eat more clean and green. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, and we need to save this planet that we're on. And we need to make sure that our children don't have a tough time, as tough as it is now. Um, and I think all everything will fall into place. I think the strongest survive. I think you've got a, right now it's about, it's a survival game, without a doubt. Um, yeah, it's gonna be different. Listen, change is always going to come. You know, the raves... I mean, last year the raves were big. The year before the raves were big. I was playing at huge raves. It's going to go back, but we're going to ha have to adhere to a new social um, awareness of... Because I don't think this is the only pandemic that's, that, that's going to come our way. Not now, anyway. Now that it can go and spread so quickly. Um... And, they need, and the World Health Organization and all the countries, you know, the four nations of England need to get together. The world needs to get together and we need to make this a better and safer place, safer place to travel, safer place to be. That's going to have an impact on the economy, which way, however that's going to fold out. But I believe as there's an oppression, there's always an upturn and then there'll be some more golden years to come. And so... Where do you see drum and bass and jungle in 10 years' time? I mean, you're talking about some of these people who are playing 50,000, you know, events. Can it get bigger? Will it get bigger? Where, where does it go? Where, where do you see it in 10 years? Well, of course. Like, I, I see it now as it being a game and, and you can play online and you, you, they'll make a virtual you and you can be somewhere else with your goggles on and you could be in Texas or somewhere. Going, Duh, stop rewinding the tunes! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with you in the corner, <laughs> getting slapped. Um, but what I'm saying to you is, um, it is global, like this music is global. You can't, it's not gonna stop. You know, I, ca I can't see the future, but I know damn sure, as long as this ticket's still going, I'm in it to win it. I will be out there, I'll be playing, I'll be performing. I'll be trying to get myself on films, TV. I'll be kicking those doors open. Some of them will open, some of them will close, but I'm staying active. That's a really good way to, to view it, to view life, I think. Um, yeah. And so just to recap, to look back, what was your favourite year of the 90s and why? I think... Uh, 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 Don't say all of them. You can't say all of them. You've got to pick Obviously, them. 94, 95 was... It was, the, as I said, it was the golden years. It was free, we were free, we didn't give a fuck. We, we were making money, we loved each other, we were playing tunes, we were smoking. We were having the times of our lives. We were young men, we were in our 20s, you know? And we didn't care about the system, you know, mortgage rates were low, you know, 
the Tories were in, Maggie was banging on about whatever she was banging on about. And it was great because we were, we were our own bosses. We didn't have to go to a major. I make my tune. I've had people come here and gone, I've been in a million pound studio and it doesn't sound anything as banging as it does in here because we've got the sound. We, we never went to college. We did it ask about it, but we learned. We learned from each other. I help you, you help me, he helped me, I got there, I opened the door for that, he's DJing, we're all, he's got P, I've got P. We're, you know, like we're looking after our families. It was lovely, it was, it was an amazing time. So that, that, that's it, you know, like, it, yeah, 94, 95, of course, but there was moments, 88, 89, 91, 92, you know, like when I did that remix for Orbital, that was in 1992. That was, that was pre-Jungle. You know, that was when we fall to the floor. You know, some of the stuff I did for Shades of Rhythm was not 92, 93, 91, 92. So it, I just, I have had an incredible journey. I wouldn't change it for the world. So thank you everyone that's been a part of that. Thanks for buying my records. Thanks for supporting me. Because it, it means the world to us now. Well, know? without them, you're, We're you're, you're nobody. Um, very finally, we ask this question to everybody uh, that we have on the pod. Who would you like to see us interview in the future and why? Um, I think there's, there, there's some unsung heroes out there that, um, that have basically paved the way... Um, for urban music, um, I think I think Mickey Finn. Um, if you haven't, I think Kenny Ken. Um, I think there's a guy called Frankie Valentine, another, another unsung hero. He used to come into Black Market Records and City Sounds, and he used to buy all types of music. He's a DJ, he's a house DJ, but he is just phenomenal. You know, he used to say to me, Ray, throw something at the wall, something will stick, whatever sticks, just roll with it. Matthew B is another one, you know, like top buzz. You know, these guys, you know, obviously, Fab, Groove, uh, Doc Scott. There's just so many people, Ratty, Tango, SS, Foundation. You know, like I look to these guys, we're all part of the same team. We played tag, we, um, you know, all the Ronnie size lot. Randall. There's quite a lot of people that we've got to interview, actually, now. <laughs> You've just named everybody in Jungle and Drummer. Well, no, I mean, I mean it, listen, if you're going to do testimonials, then all of those guys yeah, need yeah, testimony. Yeah. You know, DJ Hype, you know, Pascal, um, Hazard. You know, they've all been touched. Everyone's, you know, Zinc. Everyone's touched by someone. Dillinger, Lemon D, you know. It, it was a network of people. It wasn't just one person. You know, you got Goldie, you got Heads, you got us, you got Hospital. Listen, we're all in the melting pot. Whatever the flavour, whatever the shade, all the shades are there under one roof. Ray Keith, thank you for joining us on Raw, the Night is Ray podcast. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to go and now have a spa, aren't we? In the ground. I don't mean it's SPA. 
I'm in a spa. We're going to go and... We're going to, although, unless you've got a spa outside, I wouldn't mind that. We could probably use that after, after three hours in this room. Thank you very much, mate. I appreciate your time. No worries, my brother. Top man. Thanks very much. Picking up the, the, the camera crew, the sound engineers, thanks for making this a pleasant experience. And that's uh, Ray Keefe there, the uh, jungle drum and bass legend, Dread Recordings. If you want to get in touch with us, please do. Hello at the 90s Raid podcast. Find us on your social medias, everywhere. We're on all of them, uh, and we'd love to hear from you, so get in touch with us. You're listening to uh, Raw, the 90s Raid podcast, with me, Tom Latcham, and this man, Ray Keefe. Peace, I'm out of here. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the latest episode of Raw. We've certainly enjoyed making it and bringing it to you. And we want to make more. Uh, but to do so, we are going to need some of your help, I'm afraid. Uh, we are just normal people with normal jobs. This is a hobby and not a very well-paid one at that. In fact, it's not paid at all. Uh, we've invested quite a bit of our money to keep this uh, keep this show going. Uh, but we could really use some of your help uh, as well. Any donation, big or small, we know it's a difficult time for you all out there. It's a difficult time for all of us. Uh, but any donation... You you can give whatever size will help us to go towards improving our kit. It will help us get on the road, pay expenses to go and interview some of your 90s rave favourites uh, and also just uh, keep bringing you some more banging 90s rave content. If you do feel able to help, that'd be great. If you don't, we do understand. Uh, but if you can, head over to gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcasts. That address, I'll repeat just one more time, gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. Uh, and if you can't give any money or you want to join our community, why don't you head over to Twitter? Why don't you head over to Instagram? Why don't you head over to YouTube? And why don't you head over to Facebook? Search Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Like us, subscribe to us, do all that. Get involved.